and welcome to Always Take Notes, a podcast for, by and about writers and writing. My name is Cassius Sinclair and I'm the author of The Secret Lives of Colour and I'm also a design journalist based in London. Hello, my name is Simon Aikham. I'm working on a book on the recent evolution of the British Army for William Heinemann and likewise, I'm also a journalist. And our guest this week was the excellent Laura Barber. She wears two hats. She's the publishing director of Portobello Books and she's also the editorial director at Granta Books. We spoke to Laura at a live event in London about the business of buying a book, what it is that publishers do and how Granta fits into the publishing landscape. Hello, good evening. Thank you all so much for coming back. Um, we finally settled on a name, so this is the first Always Take Notes live event. We are also joined by Laura Barber, uh, who <laughs> is a publisher of uh, fiction and non-fiction with two different imprints, uh, Portobello Books and uh, Granta Books. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Yes, yeah, Sue, um, a big thing that we're trying to do with these events, Laura, is just uh, lift the lid a bit on, on publishing and kind of give people a sense of how it all how it all sort of works internally. So could you talk a little bit about just what a publisher does, what, what the job involves from your perspective? Sure. Um, well, I think I'd like to think that the job involves just basically sitting around reading all day, um, but it really doesn't. Mostly reading happens in the evenings and um, at night. Can everyone hear or should I be a bit more? Okay. okay. Um, but it, it does involve talking about books all day, thinking about books all day, and um, thinking about how books can be packaged and presented all day. Um, and it really doesn't feel like a job to me at all. It just feels like at some point someone's going to say, this isn't what grown-ups get to do. Um, so my job basically is to take um, a book from the idea of it being a book and at every stage, step in the way, kind of guide it through the process. So um, editing it, writing the jacket copy for it, um, briefing the cover for it, presenting it at sales conference, um, seeing it through the production um, process, getting advanced blurbs for it, wrapping it up and sending it off to the author when it arrives in, and then you know, beyond the life of, of the book itself to actually kind of just making sure the author's um, happy, informed about all the reviews that are coming in, and the authors are really at the centre of everything. So, um, yeah, that, that's basically what, what my job is. Sure, and when, when you're deciding whether or not to publish a book, what are the, the different factors, both sort of economic and aesthetic, that you're, you're thinking about? We'll talk later about this difference between commissioning an idea of yeah. your own and, and so forth, but what's on your mind when you're, you're making those decisions? Um, it's really hard to summarise what, what I'm looking for in a book because I'm always, it's never the thing that I'm, the, I, I always end up buying books that I didn't expect to, to buy because um, I always want to be surprised by a book. I think you know, we're, we're lucky at, at Portobello and Grantry in that we're independently owned. So we're not, we don't have a kind of a massive um, budget each year where we're supposed to be doing, you know, X number of cookery <laughs> books and X number of celebrity autobiographies. We're not supposed to be kind of following trends. We're supposed to be books that we think, um, we feel passionate about that sort of have some kind of cultural value. So there's, there's not as much of a commercial imperative in terms of the books we're trying to, to buy. So we never buy a book purely on the basis that we think it's going to make stacks of money. We do do some books which we know are going to actually lose us quite a lot of money. Um, you know, work, book works in translation or books that are so culturally significant that we feel like we, we're compelled to publish them. But most of the time, what drives me as a publisher is a book that I feel so excited about that I fall in love with it and then think that that has the potential for other people to fall in love with it. And 
I mean, publishing, it's really, it's really hard to make any fast and hard rules about what would become a bestseller, because it's always something that has that magic that makes people you know, individually pick up the book and then recommend it, and it, and it carries on like that. So for us, that's proven to be quite a good guide, that if we can all get excited about it as a team, um, and then convey that to the sales reps, and then convey that to the outside world, that always seems like a, a really good place to start. I think one of the really good pieces of advice I had when I first started publishing this kind of book was you have to publish a book four times. First to yourself, like if, you, if I can't, if I, when I read a proposal, I can't imagine um, what I'm going to say about it to my colleague or if I'm standing up there in front of these sales reps and I haven't got a story to tell about it, that I'm probably not the right editor to take it on. And then to, the, to your colleagues, you have to persuade them that of all the books <coughs> that they're also receiving, they want to pick up a book, the, the, the book you've circulated and read it then to the sales reps and then to the readers. Um, but you have to, <coughs> you have to sort of have the, the courage of your convictions and, the, and know that you'll be able to sort of create, tell a story about it. And it might be a different story for each of those different audiences, but you, you, know, you want to spend that time doing that with the book. So it all really starts with um, passion. And I think just the other thing to say is that for me, it's, it's um, the writing that's the most important thing. Like sentences, like I want to be excited by the writing as well, not just by the by an, an idea. Uh, I um, Obviously you work over two different imprints. I wanted to know a little bit more about the job split and how your different roles at the, at the different publishers, how that works and, and what they, what <coughs> the different titles mean on the two different imprints. Okay, so um, in some ways the, the titles are completely meaningless and they're just sort of, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, actually I wasn't quite sure why I got given one of them, but anyway, I'm a publishing director on Portobello Books and editorial director on Granta Books. And it, it broadly means um, on both imprints that I am involved in shaping the editorial direction or the publishing vision for um, the books that, not only the <coughs> ones that I publish, but the ones that my, my team buy as well. Um, on the Portobello side, because I'm sort of have a slightly um, bigger title, I guess. I'm also thinking about the brand and um, different initiatives that we can do to raise the profile of the brand and develop it over the, the longer term. Um, it doesn't, I mean, most of my job, though, is actually really with, with, with my hands on, on the books, whether they're mine or other people's. So to me, it doesn't, it doesn't feel as much like the job title isn't as important as actually the day-to-day -day business of just trying to make sure that all the books we publish are you know, have got the right name on the spine <laughs> and um, are just, you know, the authors are happy and the agents are happy and all of all of these things are, are going on. Um, yeah. And what are the distinct identities of the two different imprints? Do, do, you know, do you get given a book at one that you think, oh, this is terrible for this one, but it's perfect for the other? Yeah, it's really something where um, I think publishers are more um, obsessed by the identity of an imprint than the readers are because mostly readers don't notice what's the, the kind of logo on the spine um, but agents are also very um, uh, sort of rightly obsessed about what the two different identities mean so broadly Granta books um, the books that we publish there tend to be much more kind of voice driven they are um, the genres would be sort of anything from reportage to travel writing to memoir and it's really for me it's the difference between the two in terms of non-fiction is that they that Granter I think of as much more meditative and um, sort of magisterial whereas Portobello that, that those genres are kind of more um, polemical current affairs and it tends to be slightly more pugnacious kind of feisty um, urgent energy to it 
Um, we also only pub all our f all our fiction in English is published on the grantor list, which is more which is at the very literary end of the scale. So the kind of thing that you know could win the Booker Prize or the Orange Prize or you know the Baileys or whatever. Um, so and and also <coughs> in, in Portobello, um, we have an emphasis on international fiction. So about a third of our list um, is published in, uh, writing and translation, which is quite, it sounds very low, but it's actually quite high in terms of British publishing, which I think between about three and five percent is, is in translation normally, so at 30 percent where it's quite, it's quite high. And Laura, had you uh, always wanted to work in publishing yourself? Yeah, um, I was one of those weird people who, uh, even from school, every um, you know, summer holiday I would be doing work experience in a publishing house. Okay. Um, although actually the first work experience I did was in a, a, a law firm, because I had thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, for pretty much the same reason as I wanted to be a publisher, which is that I was quite excited by the idea of um, persuading people through the power of words and the, and the narrative that you create. And I still think there are quite a few parallels um, in between law and publishing. And every time we have a libel lecture, I'm like, damn, I've done the wrong thing. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so I, I did do, I, I knew that I wanted to do it right from the very beginning. Okay. Um, and then my education took me sort of in a way where I became unemployable for anything else. Okay, <laughs> and, and what were the specifics of your, your route to where you are now? What were the, the sort of entry-level roles you did and where did you move on um, to from there? Well, I think I, in a way I was quite lucky in the time that I joined publishing and I don't think it's as easy now for people who are trying to get into the industry because at the time when I joined there really wasn't so much of a, a kind of system of internships. I mean, I did work experience, but that was like two weeks and it was unpaid <coughs> over the holidays, but it wasn't like you were able to do a month somewhere and be really immersed in it and it was almost like training on the job. My, I was just kind of stuffing envelopes and, you know, getting paper cuts and things. Um, but so I did, um, I did all this work experience during the summers and then um, after my, in the, in the second year of, in the first year of my second degree, when I was doing an, an MPhil, I wrote to all the publishers um, who, and agents actually, who didn't publish pornography and said, I'd like to come and work with you. <laughs> um, and quite a lot of them wrote back, and one of them um, offered me a whole summer's job um, on Long Island, um, okay. which I wasn't quite what I expected. I thought I'd be working in the London office, and I got there to the interview, and he said, oh, by the way, um, it's not in Bloomsbury, it's in the Hamptons, is that okay? And I was like, yeah, that, that's fine. Um, <laughs> and that, But then the, the, the uh, the kicker was that he then said, oh, can, can you drive? And by that stage, I'd failed my driving test twice. Um, and so I couldn't have the job because it involved, he has a house in, you know, in the forest in the Hamptons and it, it, I would have to go to take his child around and pick up the post and things like that. So I learned to drive and then wrote again and got the job the next summer. Um, okay. <laughs> so after that, then I, I'd finished my, um, my degrees and then started working at Penguin, actually, in the foreign rights department which wasn't at all my dream job, and I was very clear about that when I was interviewed for it. I said, you know, I, I, I want to be an editor, but I know how important from having worked with this agent um, it is to do, to actually have a, a, a rounded picture of, of publishing. Um, and they let me do that job, and I ended up doing it for kind of nine months, and then um, became a secretary in the classics department, um, which isn't just kind of ancient classics, it was like Penguin Classics, so the whole, everything from kind of Aristotle to Martin Amos, um, and ended up running that department um, sort of five years later. Okay. Um, and then left and started at Portobello when it was a, a startup publishing company, and I've been there for 10 years now, so, yeah. Fantastic. Getting into more of the, the nitty gritty of your, um, of what you're doing day to day, we, we wondered, um, what if you could explain the sort of the process of commissioning mm. and versus just buying a book and, and how that works? Um, well, mostly 
books are, are bought from um, agents. I mean, my first advice to an author is always get an agent because they know the industry so well, they'll be your greatest and probably longest champion. Um, and they also know who to send each proposal to, who will, who's most likely to, to like it. So mostly it's buying books from agents, whether those are agents um, in this country um, or from publishers abroad. Um, so those, those are ideas where it comes in, mostly it's also sent to lots of other publishers. So you read it, you decide whether you like it, whether you want to offer, and then if more than one person offers, there's a little <coughs> auction and it kind of, you know, there's a, a mini bidding war, and then you either get it or you have your heart broken. Um, and then commissioning books, which is much, um, certainly in, our, in my kind of publishing, it's much, much more rare to do, to do it, and it's more difficult, I've found. Difficult <laughs> um, in what way? Well, because you have to find the right author and the right project, and the right author has to be available to write that book at the time when you want, and also not tied up with another publishing house, because I never want to poach a publisher, and, and I never want to poach an author from someone from another relationship they're in. So you've got to find someone who's sort of happens to be at that kind of magic moment where they're free floating or they the idea works for them or they're <laughs> an author who hasn't had been publishing been published before. Um, so I think there was the kind of, my most successful attempt at this um, so far was um, a book by an author who I think has spoken here before, Matthew Green, who wrote a book about the British military um, experience of PTSD and what it, what the experience is like coming back from a war zone, and what the you know how much care they're offered and how they how the kind of um, the treatment of military PTSD has actually influenced mental health issues more widely, um, and that came about because um, about eight years ago now I'd, I'd heard a documentary on Radio Four um, that was interviews with veterans of the Falklands. And it was really um, disturbing and, and moving because they'd had many of them. I mean, some of, many of them were, were absolutely fine, but many of them had um, seen marital breakdown, unemployment, prison sentences, alcoholism, suicide. And they had a series of interviews with, with veterans and with their families. And I remember being struck by one man who was explaining how he'd reached the point of being suicidal, and his father was also being interviewed. And this was the first time they'd ever talked about this, and it clearly been something that had been unfolding over a period of you know, years, even decades, and they just hadn't had the vocabulary to talk about it. And it seemed like then no help, help had been offered either. And it seems like those kind of reactions would be almost the normal response, a healthy response to the experience you've had during, during conflict. And I wondered, this was at the time when we were sending young men and women out to fight on our behalf, um, although maybe not in our name, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and I wondered what would happen when they came home. What kind of um, how the military had, had learned from the Falklands, and you know, and what what lay in, in store for them. Um, so that sort of made me become obsessed by um, Vietnam War writing, um, and realize, realizing that there was no trade book in the UK that actually covered a British experience. And so I set out to try and find someone who could who could do this. And um, I approached one of our authors who'd written, pre he'd written a book for us that wasn't at all on that subject, but then he had written a book about um, Afghanistan and kind of lots of guns and explosions. So I thought he might be the right person. But unfortunately, his um, mother had just died, so he didn't feel like he could go into reading a lot about PTSD. Mm. Um, and then I signed up someone who um, really loved the idea and wasn't attached to another publisher at the time. And we signed him up, and then he got the job as the... Um, I think it was the um, 
Middle East correspondent for Sky News um, a month after I signed him up. So he then clearly couldn't do the book either. Um, and then I wrote to Matthew, <coughs> because I'd known him from his previous book, and said, look, I've got this book idea. I think you'd be great to do it. And he's like, no, I'm not interested at all, um, and gave me someone else's name. And that, I had a conversation with that person for a while. Um, that didn't work out. So I went back to Matthew and said, have you got any other names? But I still think it should be you. And so he gave me another name, but then the next day he wrote back and said, you're right, it should be me. And then, <laughs> and then he sort of now has, has sort of made it his, his sort of mission, actually, mm. to, um, to talk about this issue. Um, but that was between thinking of the idea and actually commissioning the book from Matthew. It was probably two years and then another year before he delivered it and another mm. year before publication. So that felt quite long and um, painful, almost, <laughs> and not like I could actually... That wasn't a w that's not a way to do it do a job like to be it take four years to commission a book to publish a book rather, um, <coughs> but since then um, things on various projects seem to be falling into place more quickly, um, and I've just made an offer on a book that I had the idea for in the summer, um, so I'm hoping that that might be a quicker thing a bit faster. Yeah, but you also deal with a lot of international authors, and one in particular is um, Ben Lerner. Yeah, um, and I wanted you to, to talk a little bit more about him and, and the books that you've worked on with him. Yeah, well, Ben Lerner um, is a really happy publishing experience for me because um, I think the, especially probably for me because I'd come from doing um, two degrees in English literature and then working for the Penguin Classics. The thing about that is that you're dealing with writers who have stood the test of time, and everyone else has already come out and said, yeah, they're great. Everyone should read them. Um, but in contemporary publishing, especially in, in novels, um, there's always this risk that you might like something that's actually just not very good, or you might miss something that's brilliant. And I'd always felt really um, unsure of my judgment, and I didn't think that if I was presented with something amazing, I would necessarily recognise it. Cause, you know, that there's always this kind of, um, you know, the, the famous story about J.K. Rowling and people, mm -hmm. you know, she, she was turned down by every publisher in London before she got her book deal. Um, and I actually read that book and completely freaked myself out by thinking, God, I would have turned it down as well. I mean, it's, you know, the bits I liked about it were bits that reminded me of Roald Dahl, but the bits I didn't like about it, just, I really didn't like. So, so that, that made me think, I don't think I'm going to be a, a very good publisher at all. And I remember one in, because we're, Granta is, um, our sales team is, the, is also the Faber sales team. So for every sales conference, we have to go over to, the, um, to, Blooms, to Bloomsbury where the Faber offices are. And in the green room, before you go in to do your presentations, um, there are little kind of pictures and things on the walls of famous Faber authors. And the one that I kept going to back to every single time was actually a framed um, kind of reader's report on Ted Hughes's first collection. And it was signed by T.S. Eliot. And he was, he just, it just basically said, um, the collection as it stands is a bit patchy or something, but this is definitely one to keep an eye on. And I was just like, oh my God, I would never have the, the ability to recognize someone being good and, but to know that this, it needed work. And it really terrified me. Um, <coughs> and it was, and I, I was, all of these things, and because I was, you know, was in a way not very experienced at, at buying contemporary novels. Um, was slightly undermining my confidence. And then um, a colleague of mine was actually sent Ben Lerner's novel, and she didn't like it. And, but she mentioned it to me, and I, something about it made me think, oh, that sounds interesting, and I asked if I could take a look. And within about two seconds, I was just like, oh, my God, I'm in the presence of genius. Um, and I, and it, was, it was one of those moments where I, I didn't actually care whether anyone else liked it now, because I knew that the, in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, people will be reading him, I think. Um, 
And so actually when I went back to the sales conference to present it, I did play the genius card and say, I know you can only do this once in your career, but I'm doing it now. Mm. I'm saying this guy is something special. And the, because the, he's a very Marmite kind of writer. Some, some people find him absolutely ob objectionable and some people think he's amazing. Um, but I, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I think Ben's probably okay with that as well. Um, and yeah, the, the books have done really nicely for us. So. Um, and he's, it's also one of those things where when every time I have an email with him or like get to hang out with him and take him to a festival or whatever, I can't believe that I'm in the same room as him. I, it's like being in the same room as Ted Hughes or something. So, yeah. <laughs> Can you talk um, a bit more generally about uh, publishing international authors in the British marketplace mm. um, and particularly about uh, publishing translation? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it was interesting that you described Ben as an international author because f for us, the fact that he's but writing in English just means they're the same challenges that you would face with a British author, only slightly more expensive author tours. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, he also now insists on having high tea every time he comes to London, which is also <laughs> <laughs> that's probably your fault, Imogen. <laughs> um, but um, so so, but the, the challenges of publishing a, a, a work in translation are are different. Um, but actually the way one publishes them, I don't think should be any different. I mean, I think, you know, there, there are different approaches to this, um, but I would never jacket a book make, making it want, you know, I, I want to jacket a book according to what's inside the book rather than with an idea of it being translated. Um, I think some, transla some translations, especially when I first became a reader, the, the ones that were translated looked slightly like by Vita. They would look like they'd be kind of really good for you, but actually a bit <laughs> boring and worthy. Um, so that's something that at Portobello I've tried really hard to not publish books that look boring. Um, yeah. <laughs> it seems like a minimum requirement. But do, you have, do you then have a parallel relationship with the translator and with the author when you're in that Yeah, position? I mean, so, sometimes, like, there's one of our most successful um, writers is a Japanese writer called Hiromi Kawakami, who has written, um, we've published now a couple of completely charming, lovely novels that are less weird than Murakami, but kind of n less kooky than kind of Hello Kitty. So she's, it, she's sort of in this kind of sweet spot of people absolutely loving it, and, and Foils in particular have just, I think they've sold something like 10,000 copies just through one store. I mean, they've been absolutely amazing with this, with this author. And I've never had any written correspondence with her, although when she came over, I, I did get to meet her. So really, the relationship is with the translator. Um, but almost, almost my favorite form of um, publishing is, is writers from French because I read French very very slowly but it does mean that when the translation comes in I can read the original against the um, the translation and have a kind of three-way dialogue with the author the translator and oh me I'm the other part sorry <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's also a writer called um, Valeria Luiselli who is uh, Mexican um, she lives in um, in Harlem now actually and she her the process in which she works on with her translator is really interesting because the, the book that she writes in Spanish will change in sometimes quite significant ways from the book that she actually ends up publishing in, in English. And, and she and the translator have a very good relationship and, and, and things change and shift. And then I'm a kind of third spoke and actually a small spoke in that kind of wheel um, of creating a different book. Um, and actually Valeria is now more right, moving into writing in English as well, which will be a, a different kind of relationship. But, um, but yeah. Is there a difference between um, publishing fiction and non-fiction, and how does that how does that work? What are the differences? Um, 
Imogen and I were just speaking about this actually because I think it is it is for me it's harder to buy fiction because there's much it's a much more kind of passionate sort of falling in love kind of experience and those things happen more rarely for me <coughs> and sometimes if you do fall in love with a book you then lose it at auction um, which is just devastating and, and rightly so I mean you don't want to be trying to buy a book that you don't aren't going to care if you lose um, and non-fiction um, I mean, the other thing with, with fiction is that there's no reason why for anyone to read a novel. Like, why would you read this novel rather than that, that novel? So you actually have to... There's, it, there's a, a harder challenge with it in some ways, and yet the rewards can be far greater because a novel can take off in the way that non-fiction doesn't as much. I mean, there's, there's occasionally, occasionally books that sort of become the, the non-fiction book that everyone's reading that year, but it's far rarer than, than the novels that, you know, say 10 books can sell you know, over a million copies a year. Um, and non-fiction in some ways is easier because there are targets, you know, if it's a nature writing book, there are people who write like nature writing and it's, there's an, a, an obvious mm. um, audience there. Um, but in terms of editing, it, it really feels to me very similar in that I'm, I'm probably quite an old-fashioned editor or quite an American editor in, in that I really um, kind of get my hands dirty in the book and will do a line edit and sometimes rather than just kind of doing a wavy line down the side and say, awkward, or <laughs> can you rephrase? Um, I will actually rephrase for them, not as a, not as a, a way of putting words in their mouth or um, trying to rewrite their <coughs> book, but just so they, don't, they get exactly what I mean, which means that it should be easier for them to find their own solution and easier for me to not be saying, you've ignored the, the suggestion I had because they didn't understand it. Um, and that, that's true of fiction and non-fiction. Um, I mean, it's sometimes a more subtle thing with, with fiction because you're not moving whole chapters around. Mm. Although I have worked with novelists who've um, an entire structure has been changed, you know, and, and but also every author is different and every author I work with them in the way that they want to work. So it's either chapter by chapter um, or they send me the whole thing and they, it hardly needs any work or they send me, um, in the case of one author, half a book, and I have to write the rest of it. <laughs> um, but, yeah. And how much are you subject to, uh, I mean, everyone, I think, is subject to you. You were just speaking earlier about how you'd had two books about badges in one year. Yeah. But how much are you subject to sort of broad tra trends, and how much are you trying to kind of break moulds and, and try and steer your own course through what is presumably sort of quite a sort of shifting centre of gravity of popularity of subjects? Yeah, the badges thing was interesting because it was, um, I published two books about badges in one season. <laughs> um, and one of them was fiction and one of them was non-fiction and that was kind of complete coincidence and it wasn't because there was like a badger trend um, <laughs> although it was actually unfortunately the time when there was debates about the badger call which made the whole thing a little bit more um, uh, sort of controversial than it should have been but um, there, were, there was a time when one summer when I when I received three books about conjoined twins in one summer and I, I didn't buy any of them that was just weird um, and then there was also the, the time when um, three quite well-known authors published books about Henry James. So these things do so, so, sort of seem to be in the air. Um, but in terms of broader publishing trends, um, that's never something that we are specifically motivated by. Because I, I think it's, it's quite... Unless you can make the book happen very quickly and it's going to be completely yeah. brilliant, it will be seen as a Me Too book. And also, by the time you've actually commissioned a book and published it it's kind of two years so it's not like journalism where everything can happen very very quickly it's a long process and something might have moved on so I remember when there was a kind of um, a vampire trend 
by the time people were publishing their vampire books, it had moved on to kind of zombies. That kind of thing is, is hard. Um, but there are things where you find yourself, because of the books that you're reading for pleasure, um, that you will also then be thinking, oh, I'd like one of those books. And you can tell that the agents are also reading those same books for pleasure and thinking, I'd like that as well. So I think probably the trend last year that I found myself most excited by was um, books about in the kind of medical um, sphere because there have been a couple of really successful books and it just seemed like a really <coughs> underexplored and kind of fertile area. Um, but I haven't yet found one. So, <laughs> And I'm not sure whether now the time has passed, but... Um, <laughs> I, it's also one of those things where you know nature writing wasn't as much of a thing, but it's now been a thing for kind of fifteen years. So mm. y it's hard to judge whether it's the beginning of something or just a kind of a flip. Yeah. And obviously your um, imprints are independent, but mm. you know who are you accountable uh, to, and what marks out a sort of a good year or a bad year when you're <coughs> sort of nervously sitting in your in your sort of before a review meeting and you're you're thinking about what to say in, in you know about your year. What is it that sort of marks that out? Um, well, ultimately, I'm accountable to um, our owner, Sigrid Rousing, who um, is a philanthropist, but also has the book um, company on the side and she and the magazine, Grant magazine as well. She's the editor for that. Um, so she, I'm accountable to her. Um, but in terms of how I would judge whether a year has been good or bad, it's both a combination of, of how well the books and the imprints have done, um, but also whether I've bought books that I know will then mean that the next couple of years are going to be okay as well. So last year I actually had quite a difficult year in that I, I think there was six months where I didn't buy a single book um, and I did wonder if I'd lost the ability to like A, find books that I liked and B, win auctions mm. and that was really panicky because um, I think it was sort of May and people were saying don't worry it's only May and then it's like don't worry it's only June and it's like it's September kind of start panicking. Um, <laughs> But then I bought kind of five books <coughs> in the last sort of three months, so it's actually all okay. But it, I, it, it, it wasn't mm. so much that I, it wouldn't have mattered if I'd only bought three books. You know, in term, it, we're not that kind of company, but it, for my own sense of, can I still do my job and do I feel okay about it? It was really um, hard. Sure. Yeah. Um, and a couple of final things. Are there any things that you, uh, you wish writers knew about publishing and publishers but tend not to know? Um, I think the first thing is that you need an agent um, because they're, they're not just taking a 15%, they're doing a really, really valuable job um, and they will make your experience of being published and your career sort of incalculably be better, incalculably be, um, you know what I mean, better. <laughs> and also that you probably shouldn't give up the day job. Like most household name writers aren't just earning money from royalties. They're earning money from like film rights, which is also like a completely other ball game. And books can be optioned, and that you know never it never happens, or it happens very quickly. Or they're doing you know, teaching, they're writing journalism, they're they're doing lots of other things to supplement their income. So um, you have to kind of be doing it because you feel there's a story that needs to be told, and only you can tell it. Sure. Um, and do you have advice for people who w want to work in publishing on on the editorial side? Um, I think. Now it's really a question of kind of finding a way to support yourself while you do while you do internships. The good thing is that that's changed from when I started publishing is that there are actually internships. I mean, I remember writing to Penguin and I got a, a standard printed postcard back saying we don't have work experience, we don't have internships, and that was it. And there was so there was no way for me to actually get in there. 
Um, whereas now most companies offer internships. Um, we have one at Portobello and Granta where people come for an entire month so they really get to see mm. how the company works. Um, and I think almost all of the interns we had at last year have gone on to get full-time jobs. So um, it's quite a sort of, you know, there is a, a process to actually get into, on, onto the internship, but once, once you do, you know, that then that, that's the start of things. Um, and it's just in a case of being in the right place at the right time. And once you have a contact, you know, following up in a kind of non-stalking way. Um, and that's, that's how I got my job at Portobello. I um, <coughs> non-stalked um, the, the person who became my boss because he, I was working at, Pe at Penguin, which was brilliant, but it was, I was working with kind of dead authors and I wanted to really work with living ones. Um, so I, um, I hadn't killed them. They were all you know, <laughs> um, classics. Um, and, I, and so I, I really, um, admired the publishing that Philip Gwynne Jones had done at Flamingo and so every couple of years I'd write to him saying I really like your work um, can I have a job and um, he each time invited me in and gave me a, a big kind of tote bag full of books and said you, we don't have a job but read these um, and then when I found out he was setting up Portobello I wrote to him again um, twice um, okay. <laughs> and then got the job. We really hope you enjoy the show. If you'd like to get in touch with feedback, you can find us at alwaystakenotes.com. Alternatively, you can tweet at takenotesalways. This episode of Always Take Notes was produced by Olivia Kralin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies. Music was by Jess Danheiser. And we've been your hosts, Simon Acom And Cassia Sinclair. Thank you so much for joining us and we can't wait to have you back with us next time. Bye.